It has been nearly two years since the day of the mass disappearances. In one cataclysmic instant, millions all over the globe simply vanished, leaving everything but flesh and bone behind. Global war has erupted, and the Tribulation Force sets a suicidal course that places them in direct opposition to the rise of the Antichrist. Left Behind is a multimedia franchise that started with a series of 16 best-selling religious novels by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jang by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jang. Oh my God! Did you say that? The plane's falling out of the sky! Oh, Hey everybody, welcome to the show. I am your concerned about coupling in Chicago lapsed evangelical Shane Bazell. And I am the, we have teleported into a romance novel, ecumenical fanboy, Gavin Russell. (laughs) Yeah, all right. We're going to kick off Tribulation Force on this episode of I Survived the Rapture. Uh, We're going to be doing the first third of the second book of the Left Behind series. Um, How's this hitting you so far, Gavin? Honestly... Like there was like a few sections of this that I liked, but it's it's it is a very repetitious slog in this first third. Like it, they they keep on pretty much like bringing up the same plot point and really hammering it in for way too long. I, I made the joke about this kind of being like a a romance novel, but it's like that's that's about half of this section is just these two characters like looking at each other and uh, doing the shy fingers for dozens of pages. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny that you said how, how repetitive everything is because I noticed that it also goes back and spends time repeating things that happened in the first book, reminding us of what happened because there's a prologue at the beginning that says, Hey, just in case you forgot last time on left behind, Bunch of people disappeared. All of them were Christians. World went weird. Antichrist, murder, yada, yada, yada. And then it puts us into this place where we then immediately, once we start reaching current action, cut to Rayford Steele, who then starts watching the news, which recaps things the prologue just told us about the murder, how the world sees the murder that happened in the UN as a murder-suicide, and how Nikolai Carpathia was actually not the person who pulled the trigger. And Ray is thinking to himself, oh no, this is not what happened. And Buck told me because he was there and God protected him from Nikolai's Jedi mind trick. Uh, It was actually Nikolai who killed these people and it was not a murder-suicide. And all of these plot beats from the first book will eventually start to pay off, especially as we get later into the section. But for now, it's a lot of reminding us what just happened. So if you're reading this book immediately coming off of Left Behind, this is a little bit of a slog, don't you think? Right 
And uh, I think I have a theory on why they do that. Because, like, how we talked about this being, like, an airport novel, I think the purpose was if just for some reason this was just sitting in an airport and you need something to read, you could get it and still kind of be caught up in what's going on, even if you're starting with book two. I think that's valid. And I can respect a certain part of it from the perspective of like the Stan Lee philosophy that any comic book could be someone's first comic book. So you always have to explain things or you always have to provide some nod to prior information. I'm interested to see if that keeps up or if they start to become a little bit more, hey, you're going to want to read the other books first as we go along. And uh, if you want to just jump right into some of the new stuff then... So Rayford is on a Boeing 747 Oh, that's on auto from Baltimore to O'Hare. He seems to have a little bit of like workplace uh, scuffles going on with his new first officer, uh, Nick. And he kind of is a little bit, and I'm, I'm analyzing this and he's a bit kind of a, a jerk to his coworker because just out of the blue, he's just like, uh, listen, I, I, I don't care what you think of me, buddy. Yeah, I actually wanted to talk about that, and I'm glad you put that in, um, because we're going to see Ray and Buck both get into office politics really early in this book, but Ray's very specifically involves something that evangelicals tend to love, which is an imagined persecution complex. Right, because like all he does, like Rayford pulls out his Bible and is like, hey, it's not going to uh, offend you if I sit reading this for a while, and Nick's just like... Huh? Because like he didn't even hear him, and then he instantly drops. Uh, I don't care what you think about me, as long as like, well, you know, uh, I won't listen to you uh, if you if you if you decide to read aloud. I guess. Ray, how could you say something so controversial yet so brave? <laughs> like, yeah, he so he pulls out his Bible. He apparently has had a little bit of a verbal altercation with this Nick guy before. We get the information that Ray has been proselytizing to his coworkers, which like, okay, realistically, within the context of the story, put yourself in Ray's shoes. You have gotten this information that this cataclysmic event happened and you know exactly why. Yeah. Of course, you're going to tell people. This is not unrealistic. I don't think that Ray's persecution complex within the story is imagined. That's not what I'm talking about when I say imagined persecution complex. What I'm saying is, and we will see more of this going forward, that the persecution that Ray receives, the reprimands he gets for proselytizing on the job, the danger that it puts his job in, really starts to paint out and reinforce a narrative among a lot of evangelicals that they themselves are heavily persecuted within American society, which I'm sorry is just not the case. Christianity is the dominant religion in the West and in this country specifically. They are not persecuted. No one is losing their job for being a Christian by and large. And I'm sure as soon as I say that, somebody's going to pop up in the comments and be like, well, this one time, yeah, I get it. But on the whole, that is not happening. And in fact, there have been other instances specifically of Christians exercising the opportunity to persecute 
other people for their beliefs. So Christians are in the majority. This idea of persecution is not manifest in the way that both this book and I think a lot of evangelicals out there think that it is. Sorry, I'm coming and swinging today, but that really stuck with me because growing up, that was constantly taught to us that we were martyrs and we were going to be persecuted and that we needed to stand in our faith and not care what anyone thought of us. And it's like, no, dude, you're a Christian. Most people identify as Christian, like chill. Even if you look at some of the other books that Jerry uh, wrote before and after, that's a thing that he really, really hammers home in like a lot of his works when even I like I'm a Christian, too. Uh, I I don't really feel like I'm persecuted for my beliefs uh, at all. Like, in in fact, like I, I, I feel like I have a pretty... I guess, secure um, a place to openly believe how I want to believe and even believe the the version of it that I do. And I, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's just baffling that that is the kind of uh, mentality that a lot of uh, evangelical writers tend to take. Yeah, I'm not done taking swings. Um, I think the reason why a lot of evangelical writers and a lot of evangelical preachers and folks like that take that angle is because it sells. Mm-hmm. when you tell people that they are a persecuted minority and that they need to fight back against an encroaching evil majority, that fires something up in us as humans. We tend to circle the wagons and tend to be a little bit more open to that in-group that we are being named a part of, and that sells. People want to belong. They want to be the scruffy rebel alliance. They don't want to be the hegemonic empire. So I think that, uh, I think that narrative sells yeah, exactly. very well. So that's Rayford's politics in the office. Um, what's going on with uh, with old Buck? Well, after Buck is um, recovering from being failed to be rope reprogrammed, like he's the only one that made out of that UN meeting with any of his memory. He's um, he's been he's actually buying a car because he he's moving to Chicago and he's moving from the big city of Manhattan. So that's something that he never actually needed. And he's also just got a cell apartment phone already installed. So he doesn't have to do any anything to get it, uh, get his phone in there. Uh, oh yeah. And then he also is facing some uh, work politics because he's got a new boss after Lucinda Washington disappeared. Uh, and her name is Verna Z. And uh, Verna is not a fun lady to deal with from Buck's uh, point of view. Yeah, she's kind of an overbearing uh, ladder climber. Buck describes her as someone who has no talent as a journalist, so she's only allowed to be a manager. They have some uncomfortable back and forth she calls him insubordinate because he's a hotshot who thinks that the rules don't apply to him, um, kind of consistent with his nickname. Yeah, and so she won't even call him his nickname either. Oh, yeah, she's Cameron. Yeah. I'm not going to call you, Buck. I'm going to call you Cameron. <laughs> Which, like, all right, lady. Like, it's cool. But the thing about this uh, this Verna lady um, is that she, yes, she is taking over the position of Lucinda Washington, Buck's friend who was raptured. When we look at her, she is placed in a position of authority over Buck and kind of as a literary obstacle in his way that immediately gets neutralized. <laughs> like, you think for a minute, you're like, oh, this might be an interesting like back and forth where Buck is out of his element and Buck has to contend with someone over him and having to make him him follow the rules, which he's never had to do. 
Nah, uh, he makes one phone call to the editor-in-chief of Global Weekly um, who is like, yeah, no, um, leave him alone. He gets to do whatever he wants and work from home. Yeah, and I thought I thought that was uh, I thought that was a bit weird too because I even wrote in the margins of my book. I'm like, oh man, Buck's been dethroned. He's gonna have to deal with like having to essentially climb back up the ladder again. This is gonna be this is gonna be uh, an interesting one. Hold on, let me try to find some of this dialogue. Oh yeah, uh, they actually listen in to the call that uh, Verna and his uh, his boss have. Or what was what's his boss's name? Uh, that 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 I guess New York uh, boss. Oh crap, I don't. Oh, remember. Mr. Bailey, Stanton Bailey. He gets Mr. Bailey on the phone, and uh, Verna's secretary, Alice. He's like, hey, you want to see something cool? Come here. And he's like, what is it? And he's like, you know, if you, uh, they have this thing on the phones where you can listen to other people's calls in the office and they don't know you're listening. So they eavesdrop on her just um, uh, getting chewed out. It's like, I just had a buck's hair. He's, uh, he's doing good work there. You know, he can even work out of his apartment. <laughs> yeah, just leave him alone. And it immediately neutralizes the uh, Verna obstacle. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that takes us with a kind of total lack of tension into chapter two. Yeah. So we're out of chapter one. We've checked in with Ray. We've checked in with Buck. And now we're into chapter two where the tribulation force has their first meeting. And to recap from the last time, the tribulation force is the group working out of new hope village church consisting of Rayford Steele, Chloe Steele, Buck Williams, Bruce Barnes. And they are kind of insiders who all have deduced the knowledge of the Antichrist, they uh, they think, and deduced his identity and are going to fight back against him over the next seven years as much as they can and bring as many souls as they can to Christ. So what is the first thing that Ray notices? Uh, did you catch that when he uh, goes to church this night to meet with uh, with the trip force? No, I, I, off the top of my head, I don't have it right here. What, what you got? I specifically wanted to call this out because this is also something that I grew up around that never seemed weird. But Jenkins points out how affectionate men are to other men. Oh, wait. Yeah. Oh, you know what? Uh, I actually had this like highlighted in later in my chat. There's a lot of like specifically mentioning that like the the men were hugging, which, you know, I was like, all right, that's some cool bro moments. But, you know, men can hug each other. Uh, so but they, they keep on mentioning that and they kind of keep on alluding that this would be weird in other places. Yeah. And growing up, A.G., that was never something for me that was taboo. Um, men hugged. Um, some men would, you know, do like the, the, the tight hug, kiss on the cheek thing. Men would cry with each other. Men would hold one another while they cried. Like there was this complete brotherly outpouring of emotion that was never, ever considered effeminate or less manly or gay or anything like that. It was just this family dynamic, which I mean, in a lot of religions, you know, there's that idea of family, but specifically men showing brotherly affection to other men was never taboo, which I think is also, I mean, honestly, a positive thing. I think it is appropriate for men to be able to do that and without, you know, fear of being judged um, or anything like that, you know, kiss the homies goodnight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you got to kiss the homies goodnight. I was I actually <laughs> put that in my uh, my notes later on. So I'm glad that you said that exact phrase. Yeah, dude. Uh, yeah, I think I got to give them kudos that they're at least trying to. Uh, um, uh, it's so, like you can still show masculinity, but also, you know, uh, treat uh, like uh, hug, hug your brothers and stuff. So that's you know what? That's good. 
points points to that. Yeah, walking into a, a church foyer on Sunday and being like, "Brother Gavin, how are you?" and just giving you a big old big old bear hug. That was a normal occurrence, right? Yeah. Yeah, they, they see you, they embrace you. So we get to Bruce's sermon. Now, we've heard sermons from Bruce before. Bruce is kind of stepping into a role as someone who goes to the pulpit. Previously, Bruce was what was called the visitation pastor. And this is just a little evangelical Easter egg. Typically, visitation pastors do not preach. They may come up and say a few words before the offering plate gets passed around. They may form some other function, but normally what a visitation pastor's job is, is to reach out to new folks that have come into the congregation. They're more of a one-on-one type person. They're not someone who like goes to a crowd and uh, gets them riled up or, or preaches, but uh, Bruce is natural. Yeah. He's really he's really going for it. And he starts to talk about the impressions he is getting from God. This is really important because when you are a Christian in this specific tradition, and I, I'm always going to say that because I know the word Christian, that word does a lot of hard work to describe a lot of different folks and a lot of different beliefs. But when we say Christian, we're specifically talking about evangelical. There is a particular assumption that God does speak directly to people, usually not with an audible voice, though that's not out of the question, but usually he will impress things upon you. You get feelings, you get senses, and I keep making reference to Star Wars um, because these books also make low-key references to Star Wars, but you feel disturbances in the force, Mm -hmm. almost. People talk about something being impressed upon their heart. God doesn't say with an audible voice, you should do this. A ghostly hand doesn't come down and write it on your wall, but you get a feeling like you have to do something or turn to a specific verse or something just clicks for you. So when you hear people talking about God talking to them, that is what these individuals are experiencing. Yeah. Um, and we can see that with Buck in the end of the first book. He starts to feel, hey, you need to go to the bathroom and get away from this for a second. So he does. Um, they also talk about feeling led. And so that's what's going to guide Bruce through the rest of this particular book in his decision-making and also the things that he chooses to share with his congregation. So let's talk a little bit about the content of Bruce's sermon. So you want to go for there? Uh, well, he starts talking about um, first uh, the, the the four horsemen, uh, I believe. Hold on. let's. I think we're into chapter three territory real quick this is the one where he talks about um recapping carpathia's antichrist checkboxes uh here we go okay he starts talking about nikolai carpathia's plan for a one world uh building a one world government one world currency the treaty with israel and moving the un to babylon and all of those things together uh make bruce uh like he's sure that nikolai is uh is their guy uh, and like, cause all of the, the, the signs are lining up and he even get, uh, talks a bit with Buck about this. And then he's talking about the, the whole moving of 10% of the weaponry that is not destroyed from each nation, all the nuclear armaments, uh, moving them to Babylon, which he's renamed new Babylon. And that will be kind of the, uh, stockpile that they, they, they use to enforce their new policies. All right, I got to talk about some of this. First of all, Babylon doesn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. So they say Babylon like it's a place you can just go. Babylon was a city, the capital city of Babylonia, which was an ancient kingdom and is not there anymore. They just kind of say that like it's a place that people just know where it is. 
It's not. There's not a kingdom there called Babylonia anymore in modern day Iraq. So that is the, the oh, we're going to move it to Babylon and rename it New Babylon. Just call it Babylon. Also, if he put all of these plans forward, even if all the Christians in the world got raptured and all of this happened, the Babylon thing, that word, even in modern context, divorced from the Bible, has enough of a negative connotation. People think Tower of Babel. They think fallen is Babylon the Great. Like it's so embedded in Western culture that if you say Babylon, people are immediately going to go, wait a minute, that's like a a word for a bad thing. And even secular media would be like, wait, what the, okay, hold on. And then they would look at that and look at the book of Revelation and be like, okay, this weirdo is probably not the Antichrist because that's probably not a thing, but he's definitely copying directly from what the Bible says. And that's weird. So like even secular media would call him out for doing that. So I think this is thoroughly weird and unrealistic. Right. And one thing that I've noticed that because I've uh, I've read all the way through tribulation force uh, at, at the time of the recording and something they haven't brought up yet is they have they never brought up the hanging gardens like uh, being a big thing. Like I, I, I would have at least imagined like Haim or someone like that to bring that up. But that's that's just something they ever mentioned. Oh, yeah. Especially with Haim and his formula, he'd be like, we could revive the hanging gardens of Babylon. That would have been a great reference. Yeah. Um, that's another Babylon thing that people might remember from school. Yeah, the Babylon thing is just so this fact that they call it Babylon. They don't say the region in Iraq, which is the modern name for it, which I I failed to look up before recording. They could have just said that and then had someone later on go, That's the site of ancient Babylon. <laughs> which would have been a better way of handling this. Mm-hmm. Like very frustrating. This first third of the book has frustrated me very much. Uh, and also, since we're recording this in December, shout out to the line where Rayford was uh, is starting to have a crisis about himself. And he asks himself, was he Scrooge who needs such a dream to see how wrong he'd been? Or was he George Bailey, Jimmy Stewart's character from It's a Wonderful Life, who got his wish and then wish he hadn't? <laughs> Yeah, so he gives two weird Christmas shout-outs right there in the middle of the book. Before we move on from Babylon, um, I do want to just educate the audience real quick for those of you that may not know. Uh, Babylon was the capital city of Babylonia, a kingdom in ancient Mesopotamia between the 18th and 6th centuries BCE. Um, You also may be familiar with the kingdom of Babylon uh, from the Code of Hammurabi, often thought to be the first written code of uh, laws and statutes. Um, so when you're studying world history in high school or middle school, you always hear about Hammurabi's code that comes from ancient Babylonia. It is also significant within the book of Daniel because the people of Israel were held in captivity in Babylon for several generations. That's another thing in the book of Daniel, which we've called back to in previous episodes, also a source for some of the prophecy that Tim LaHaye is using to fuel his ideas about left behind. So it all connects. It's all in there. So you talked about the special agreement with Israel. The special agreement with Israel, which is going to mark this beginning of the seven-year tribulation, when that treaty of whatever it is is signed, that's when it kicks off. Bruce also doesn't shy away from talking about the seal judgments, the judgments of God's wrath that will hit the world during the seven years. One-fourth of the world's population will be wiped out. Uh, I don't want to be... Malden, but will you look around this room and tell me what that means to you? And everyone kind of like, uh, like Rayford's kind of like, oh man, one of the people in this room is going to die. 
essentially. Yeah, he calls out the, uh, I think it's Buck that calls out the the college professor, and I have never had a college professor do this, but the look to your left, look to your right, one of you will not graduate. Like, that that kind of thing. They also name drop uh, the title of one of the ne- uh, later books where they say there's going to be a great soul harvest. Yeah, the great harvest of souls. So, well, that's that's the name drop for book four. Yeah. Uh, when we get to soul harvest, exactly. And specifically in that vein of a soul harvest, he talks about the 144,000. Uh, yep, yeah. When there's uh, 144,000 Jews springing up and traveling uh, throughout the world. We were always taught about the 144,000 as during the tribulation, and this gets into evangelicals, Christianity, interesting relationship with Judaism. They, they believe they're God's chosen people. At least that's how I was taught growing up. The only mistake that they made was that they did not recognize the Messiah the first time that he came. That is going to be super relevant to a character that's going to show up later in this book mm-hmm. um, and later in the series. But they didn't recognize him the first time that he came. Much like the Christians that are left behind, the Jews that are left behind are going to receive a stronger call from God that they need to come to Christ. So 144,000 of them, which honestly, in terms of a slice of population is not a lot, but they are going to be called to Christ in a very radical way during the tribulation and because it says that in the Bible. Now, I want to get into something else here. Bruce talks about building a literal bunker underneath the church with his master plan how to get it in there too yeah he has a whole plan about how he's going to do it and this is where we get that crossover into doomsday prepper culture that you see a lot with evangelicals it is very common to see certain evangelical groups that are preppers. They get their water and their, like like Jim Baker. Jim Baker, formerly a televangelist, still kind of a televangelist, obsessed with selling these end times food buckets um, that have freeze-dried food in them or um, non-perishable food in them, which is weird considering that most evangelicals believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. They believe they're not even going to be around for the tribulation, but they're still selling these food that apparently tastes terrible. Um, I remember a Rhett and Link episode where they they tasted Jim Baker's food buckets and it was disgusting. Oh no! But these preppers are often evangelicals. They believe that that God is going to bring fire and destruction and, and everything to the world. And it's not that they believe specifics. Not all of them are as into the prophecy stuff the way that someone like Tim LaHaye would be, because if they were, they wouldn't be worried about it because they're going to be raptured. But they do think that the end of the world is coming as God ordained. They don't know how, but they got to be ready for it with their guns and their concrete bunkers and everything. And uh, that's actually, we were talking off mic about Far Cry 5. The plot of that game has a lot to do with some of that prepper evangelical rapture culture. Um, But that's all I'm going to say about that because I know you have not played it and I don't want to spoil any of it for you. Well, thank you. Far Cry 5, definitely great um, extracurricular reading if you're going to do I Survived the Rapture with us. Um, I highly recommend it. Tons of fun. Uh, and the, the the plan that he has to actually get this uh, bunker in is actually pretty pretty smart. He's like, all right, we're going to order a water tank and just like leave it in the church parking lot for weeks. And then we're going to get an excavator and people are going to think, oh, you're just installing this uh, this water tank. And then we're going to we're going to house it and we're going to we're going to hide that we're doing this and then we're going to get the water tank like uh shipped away when we put the bunker it's gonna be great it's it's gonna it's gonna all work out yeah um bruce has some very manic energy about building this bunker (laughs) 
<laughs> he's it's really funny it's actually really funny bruce being manic is kind of a sub theme of uh this section because like he does he's not been sleeping much either and like anytime someone call I, I believe like there's a part later in the book where like he's uh he's about to go to sleep and someone calls him like oh i'll let you nap he's like no you get over here we're gonna talk yeah and um bruce is really being like the glue that is holding the team together. Um, mm-hmm. I, I actually really like him throughout this yeah. part of the book. So we move on into cutting back to Buck. Gets a voicemail from Steve Plank, who, if we remember, is now Nikolai Carpathia's press secretary, mm-hmm. and saying, "Hey, man, Carpathia wants to talk to you." Yeah, and uh, he he starts getting like he starts sweating immediately as this happens. He's just like, "Oh God, Carpathia knows. Oh God, Carpathia knows." I mean, dude, I would too. Like, I I saw this guy murder two people in cold blood, and then Jedi mind trick an entire room of people into believing they didn't see it. I don't know what his power set is i don't know what his power level is i don't know i don't know what this guy's capable of like and buck does have those thoughts in his inner monologue he's like dude i don't know what this guy's capable of is he omniscient like god like i don't know what he can do Right, and uh, people even keep on uh, bringing up like one of the one of the interesting things on the note of like him going through a traumatic experience is everyone like will keep on saying to Buck, "Oh man, you know the, the one silver lining of you not being there is you didn't have to go through the the trauma of seeing uh, the this guy uh, kill himself." But uh, in actuality, like he he's the he's the only one that actually remembers what happens. So that's like extra weighing on. Like every time someone's like, "Oh Buck, you know uh, you missed a big opportunity." but hey you know no hard feelings on the inside like i wish i could just tell you what is what i actually know exactly because everybody thinks he wasn't there buck is just the first in a long train of characters who are going to be extremely traumatized throughout the next seven years um and i want to keep talking about that like this is the next moment in a series of moments that are going to severely traumatize our characters is Buck witnessing this double murder. And like, even like, uh, uh, even the, the rapture trauma itself was, uh, was a big thing, but yeah, it's, this is going to be a snowball. I feel that keeps getting bigger and bigger. I mean, I, I'm just looking at like the titles of some of the next books. I'm like, Oh, this can't get be good for our characters. He's it's not, <laughs> it just gets worse. So Chloe and Ray, we cut to them and they are talking about Buck specifically and Chloe and Buck's blossoming potential relationship. Um, She's kind of waffling on whether or not he's interested. And Buck, of course, is doing the same thing when it's his POV. We get some of those seeds planted that are going to start to pay off a little bit later in this section. Buck is reading the Gospels. um, And this stuck out to me. I don't know if you highlighted this, but he starts getting impressed with the figure of Jesus as a radical. Yeah, I actually, I I highlighted this too as well. Jesus is a radical who upset the status quo and specifically when it came to people who were wealthy and giving to the poor and things like that. I get a little kind of like starting to roll my eyes sometimes at the amount of like Jesus was a socialist memes that pop up on Facebook because I think that that's a little bit of an overbroad reading, you know, even speaking myself as definitely a socialist, but I read that. And I'm just like, okay, yeah, I've seen it before. You're not going to convince any right wing Christians with that logic. They're not going to listen to you. I mean, it, it kind of does have that vibe of like when the pastor pulls his chair like around backwards, sits and is like, "Hey guys, did you know that Jesus was like the first revolutionary?" Yeah, that's probably why I roll my eyes at those memes so often because it sounds like the youth pastor trying to be cool. 
right? So, you know, keep making those. Never mind. I, I take back what I said. But he does get impressed with that. And I thought that was really ironic considering where the rest of these books fall politically and how Jenkins and LaHaye definitely made a lot of money on this and were very wealthy um, off of this series. Oh man, I, got, I guess Jesus like Buck's tradition too. Was Jesus kind of like me? Could he have had the nickname Buck too? Jesus Buck Christ. Yeah, Jesus Buck Christ. That's <laughs> awesome. He's just like me. <laughs> this is really funny. Um, so Buck then prays about Chloe and then uh, and then goes to bed. So that gets us into chapter three, where Buck goes to see Bruce to talk about the uh, meeting with Carpathia, which is going to take up, um, that meeting is going to take up a bulk of this section that we're talking about now. Mm-hmm. They kind of go back and forth about, you know, Buck's worried about Carpathia, that he knows. He also feels responsible for Hattie Durham being so close to Carpathia. She's like, he's like, man, I didn't mean to introduce her to the literal devil. I thought I was getting her a good job. Like, I, I didn't mean to. And so he feels kind of responsible for that. We learn that Buck's cover story about the disappearances gets finished, and uh, we get into some Catholic bashing. You want to talk about that? Yeah, I uh, hold on. Let me find. Yeah, a lot of Catholics were confused because while many remained, some had disappeared, including the new Pope, who had just been installed a few months before the vanishings. He had stirred up controversy in the church with a new doctrine that seemed to coincide more with the heresy of Martin Luther than with the historic orthodoxy they were used to. When the Pope had disappeared, some Catholic scholars had concluded that this was indeed an act of God. Those who opposed the orthodox teachings of the Mother Church were winnowed from among us, Peter Cardinal Matthews of Cincinnati, a leading archbishop, had told Buck. The scripture said in the last days it will be in the, um, as in the days of Noah. And you'll recall in the days of Noah, the good people remained, the evil ones were washed away. It goes into Buck and this, uh, this preacher like going back and forth and he's just kind of like keeps on poking holes and the guy's like all right so only the the evil people were washed away why don't you take the babies and he's like ah well uh maybe he's protecting the innocents anytime the uh the priest brings up something buck immediately like starts poking holes in it yeah and that low-key sort of most catholics were left behind uh because as we said before tim lay thinks catholicism is a false religion getting into the idea that Oh, there were some Catholics that did it right. Real kind of uh, stuff there um, in terms of Catholicism. Plenty of Catholic bashing. Buck, I think, doesn't he? Doesn't Buck bring up uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? Yeah, he brings up uh, Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Yeah, which I think gets wielded against Catholicism quite a bit um, because of the focus that Catholicism often has on ritual. Um, and Catholicism is not the only denomination of Christianity that is very ritual focused, but Protestants and specifically evangelicals, because they are so fast and loose with a lot of doctrine and don't ascribe as much to pageantry and ritual, which personally, I think pageantry and ritual have their place in, mm-hmm. uh, in worship and religion. I think they're kind of cool, but because evangelicalism is so much more freeform, a lot of times they will wield that verse in opposition to some of the older, more established denominations of church saying like, oh, they think that their rituals are working to get into heaven when really it's just faith. All you need is faith. 
bait the size of a mustard seed, yada, yada, yada. Even like this, this, this priest ends up getting kind of like fed. He's like, listen, you're not a Catholic, are you? He's like, no, he's like, well, you don't understand the broad sweep of the historical church. Yeah, a little bit of that, like, well, you're not Catholic, you wouldn't understand, which I don't think a priest would do. They would be more like, well, let me explain to you why we believe the way that we do. I mean, pretty much every priest I've ever met has been very open about sharing how they came to faith and what their faith does for them. Um, just like every rabbi I've ever met and just like most Protestant pastors I've ever met. You know, most people who spend their lives dedicated to a specific faith understand it very well why they believe what they believe and are happy to talk to you about it. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think that that's a, there's no truth in that reading of <laughs> that's how that's how the priest would behave. I do want to point something out because Buck's thoughts, again, romance novel style, wander to Chloe. Mm-hmm. And he starts doing this thing that made me uncomfortable. It points out their age difference that she is, I think, 20. And I don't know how old Buck is. I think we're supposed to assume early 30s. I think, yeah, I think he's, uh, I, I, I think it's no more than 15 years difference. He's like early 30s and she's very early 20s, like 20, yeah, 21. Right. Because I think that, because Carpathia is 33. And I think Buck is close in age to him. So he brings up that Chloe, he's doing the, she's very mature for her age line, mm-hmm. which, uh, yeah, <laughs> I had that exact same like onomatopoeia in my notes, just uh, like, come on. We're back to like in part one of book one of just me going, come on, man. Like, you don't need to put that in there. Like, they're adults. Like, yes, there is an age difference. But the more you keep trying to lampshade it, the weirder that it gets, Jenkins. Yeah, and I guess that must have been just because of Jenkins' age. And he was trying to, like, highlight. So I don't don't know. I don't know, Jenkins. What what you doing here, buddy? This is not the last of kind of weird, creepy stuff that gets written about Chloe in these books. Um, There's a line that will come up several books later. Um, that I'm going to point out, but we won't know till we get there. No, the creepy Chloe part keeps going. There's more creepy Chloe stuff. So we'll go Hattie bashing and creepy Chloe stuff. So we jump back, another church scene. Spent a lot of time in church um, in this first part. Everybody goes to church. We hear about the glorious appearing. So we have another title drop of the, not the final, final book, but the penultimate book of the series. I think the final book is called Kingdom Come. So Right. Um, and that one I actually didn't read. So Glory's Appearing was where I stopped because um, I, at the time, thought that it was the end. So Bruce finally gets into his sermon about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which they are so important to apocalypse imagery, rapture imagery. Uh, we have them on our art for the show. So they are, they are very important to everything. And they are this trope that gets used over and over again. So we get to meet the four horsemen of the apocalypse and learn what they're all about. What they actually are, these four horsemen, in this interpretation, the first four seal judgments. Now, let me rewind a little bit and play the Bruce Barnes here. The judgments of God's wrath upon the world are these punishments upon mankind, very physical, real occurrences during the tribulation. There are seven seals that are open. Each one is a judgment. There are seven trumpets that are blown. Each one is a judgment. 
And there are seven bowls or vials. Um, Sometimes they're called the vases or vases, but I think bowls is how we'll describe them for now. I can't remember how the book describes them. Each of these 21 judgments will be meted out over the course of the tribulation, and each one gets worse and worse. And they are manifestations of God's wrath upon the world, and they are what are going to kill a large part of the population of humanity. But the four that kick it all off, the vanguard of these judgments are the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. You can learn about them in Revelation chapter six. And Bruce gets up to talk about them. And he gets a little bit into the Rayford, I don't care what you think of me vibe a little bit. Did you catch that? Uh, a little bit. Um, go on. I, I, I didn't highlight any specific uh, stuff about that. But like, well, I, I did because he gets up into the pulpit and he says, if you are offended, then I'm doing my job, which I'm going to say hits real different in 2020. A, uh, a Christian pastor being like, if you're offended, I'm doing my job. You can almost see the early, early seeds of the, like the Trump era, F your feelings, facts don't care about your feelings, kind of alt-right, Trump era right, evangelical positioning. Mm-hmm. in that early persecution complex or that like radical, I'm a radical for Christ kind of thing. And I do think that, you know, when your beliefs do challenge a status quo, which in the book they do. Yeah. Because Christians now are a minority because all the Christians went to heaven and everyone else around is new. But in the real world where that's not the case, I think it rings kind of hollow. Like, I don't really care what you think of me dude, I don't think of you. <laughs> All right. Like I, I don't think of you. It's fine. Calm down. Uh, there's also another uh, line that's kind of in the same vein where he does go like, okay, I don't want you to worry about me that I haven't become a wild eyed madman, a cultist or anything other than why I have been since I realized I had missed the rapture. Yeah. And like, I'm, I'm kind of bashing on this and I want people to understand I am saying outside of the context of the story because Christians who read this and I heard this all the time growing up would speak like this Mm -hmm. and they believed these things whilst at the same time being the overwhelming majority in the country within the context of the narrative. It's fine. It makes total sense. And I think that that's well-written. What I'm talking about is taking it out of the context and understanding that people try to emulate this energy. It just made me go, right? Like I massive eye roll. Now he does say, in case you thought the book of revelation was symbolic, it's not. Um, that's a bit another big thing is that there's Bible scholars all over the world who are trying to tell you that the book of Revelation is symbolic. The book of Revelation was written in code to these different churches about the Roman Empire. This is not relevant to today. This is not prophecy. This is a message of encouragement to these various churches because not a lot of people know that Revelation's not all crazy beasts with horns and kings and whores of Babylon and horsemen of the apocalypse and and trumpets of wrath and all of this stuff and the moon turning into blood. That's not all of Revelation. It actually begins with John writing letters to all of these churches around the Mediterranean world. Mm -hmm. And kind of saying like, hey, you're doing okay. You're not. These are the things you need to do. It's a performance review of these different churches. And then it is a series of what a lot of scholars believe to be coded messages about how they are going to stay in front of the Roman imperial regime. That is one interpretation. It's one that I pretty much ascribe to. But if you take that historical context away, always a dangerous thing to do. 
all of a sudden, and you start taking it literally and saying that there's going to be literal vials of wrath and and beasts and (laughs) dragons and stuff, then Revelation becomes the super metal book of the Bible that we all flipped to when we were bored in the sermon. And it's kind of funny because when I was uh, when I was growing up, when people was like, "What's your favorite book of the Bible, Gav?" I'm like, "Mine's Revelation." And then everyone in the room kind of look at me like, "Uh, Gavs." Because it's super metal, that's why. Right, and actually, I want to briefly talk about a like just for a few minutes a little bit of research I've done this week because uh, when you kind of take that historical context away, people. The book of Revelation, because of just how hectic the world is, you can kind of make an argument for almost any decade you're in that, hey, uh, the Antichrist is all here, is here, all the signs are here. Because uh, there's this one guy named Oswald J. Smith that made a book called Is the Antichrist at Hand in 1927. And he proposed that Mussolini was the Antichrist and there was about to be a giant famine to hit the world. And you know what? He wasn't entirely wrong. He made the false prediction that the tribulation was going to be in the like from I think uh, 1930 to 1939, but that Mussolini was the Antichrist and needed to be stopped. Well, the Great Depression hit in the 30s, so a lot of people underwent a famine, and then war started um, uh, really starting to amp up in the 30s again. So, to Oswald J. Smith, from his point of view, because he had the Book of Revelation telling him about all these events that were going to happen that really amped up his paranoia thinking like oh man it's coming right now the world is literally about to go to war again yeah and it did happen <laughs> like um i mean world war ii did bring us to the brink and um you know the rise of the original fascists in italy i mean a lot of things changed so to that guy's credit like he was close yeah so i want to jump in here with an actual reading from the book of revelation um because as we're going through here i i want to make sure that we are looking at these bible passages so i've got revelation chapter six pulled up and this is where we hear about the four horsemen of the apocalypse revelation chapter six starting with verse one I watched as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, come and see. I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come and see. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come and see. I looked and before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and the wine. And when the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the fourth living creature say, come and see. I looked and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death and Hades followed close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword and famine and plague and by the wild beasts of the earth. Which, dude, that is super metal. And that's why that gets used in so many, like, apocalyptic, awesome pieces of fiction and music and art and movies. Like, whenever you have to conjure up apocalypse imagery, it's always these four horsemen. Even if the story's not about 
the biblical apocalypse. I mean, and sometimes if anybody watched Good Omens on Amazon, a great show, you guys need to check it out, that they are literally put into the story. Games like Darksiders, literally about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. But often the phrase come and see or these passages about the four horsemen are used whenever you need to bring gravitas to your album or your story or your video game. Right. It's, it's really cool imagery. It's super metal that you get to call back to. All I could really think about for one of the, like some of those lines is uh, that Johnny Cash song, The Man Comes Around, like, uh, where he does that, the, the opening of The Man yes. Comes Around. Come and see, and I saw, and behold, a white horse. Dude, I uh, I was trying to think of the name of the Johnny Cash song. I'm glad you saved me on that. I'd say, yeah, it's when the man comes around that he he reads that passage from Revelation at the beginning because it's powerful. Like that's really great, like poetry. Yeah, it's really strong imagery and it's super cool. And you can show people who've never cracked open a Bible in their life the image of those four horsemen, and they're going, oh yeah, four horsemen of the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in World of Warcraft. Like it's everywhere, and it's always you just hear four horsemen, and that's immediately this sign of cataclysm and doom, which is really cool. Now, as we go forward through the story of Left Behind, those horsemen are going to get picked apart. But the important one is the white horse. In LaHaye's interpretation, that white horse is the Antichrist. He is the conqueror who will conquer the entire world. And much as we are seeing Nikolai Carpathia through his power and influence of the UN and over the nuclear disarmament is actually going out among the world to conquer. He is becoming a leader for the entire world. Uh, Then Bruce uh, finishes up his sermon. He gets into a little bit of Daniel chapter 9. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I don't think we have time for me to go all the way into that, but Daniel 9, according to LaHaye, is a description of the Antichrist that he will rule and then he will be struck down after a time has passed after, and he assumes that it's the three and a half year mark that the Antichrist will be struck down and then will rise again. The, the part that I thought was funny was how Bruce at the very end of the sermon is just like, hey, uh, now let me be clear. I'm not the Antichrist myself. And everyone just starts laughing. He's like, no, man, like we're going to get to a point where who you can trust will start, the number of those people will start getting less and less. So that, that's why he like really hammers in that he's not the Antichrist himself. Yeah, he says a couple of really wise things here. He says, you know, how do you know I'm not the Antichrist? Because uh, I'm not promising you peace. All I'm promising you is war, famine, plague, and death. See you next week. <laughs> Which is really funny. He drops the line, wise as serpents, gentle as doves, which is, you know, kind of a speak softly, but carry a big stick or walk softly, but carry a big stick. And he also says to the congregation, be careful ascribing Christ-like attributes to someone who isn't Christ. That is actually something that you talked about people predicting who the Antichrist is throughout history. That gets done a lot. When you have people who come promising peace or disarmament, or order, or ascribing Christ-like attributes to people, especially political figures, there's always going to be a segment that goes, ah, Antichrist, found him. There he is. (laughs) They did it to, I mean, specifically in my lifetime, I remember that being done to Bill Clinton, George Bush, Barack Obama. I mean, every U.S. president um, in modern history, at least, has gotten that label. I've even seen a small minority of the more Democrat Christians saying that it's Trump as well. I mean, look, if we're going off of that 
specific metric of ascribing Christ-like attributes to someone who isn't Christ and a bunch of Christians doing that. I can see that logic. Yeah, I can um, see as well. I mean, there's a lot of evangelicals that are like, you know, God and then Trump. Um, that that's a very common refrain. So being kind of overawed with this guy's presence and, you know, the promise of what he means for their political ideals and movement. And I, I can see that. Yeah. You know, do I believe he is? Nah, <laughs> but, but I can see where certain people would draw that conclusion if that's the metric that they're using. So we got to move forward in the plot um, because things actually do start moving now. Right. Yeah. So after the sermon ends, Buck, he stops uh, and gets Chinese takeout. He's like back, his mind's back onto uh, his news story, uh, going to uh, see Stanton Bailey. And then someone, let's see. Oh, yes. I think it's, yes. Steve Plank calls him. And I highlighted the first thing he says is, Where the devil are you, man? Uh, he, you know, Steve Plank now works for the little antichrist. Remember, because we don't swear. This is left behind. Yep. This is left behind. We don't swear, but we managed to get a little double entendre in there about uh, where the devil are you? Right. And uh, Steve is like a little bit miffed because uh, he, he hasn't been reaching out to him uh, and like talking to him about the job. So what he does is he literally like looks up Buck's new phone number using Nikolai Carpathia resources and just calls him. Yep. And we're going to learn about those Nikolai Carpathia resources a little bit later. Plank basically says like, dude, look, you got to come meet Nikolai. He's really miffed that you didn't come to the meeting at first. There's a plane ticket waiting for you at the airport. Just go pick it up. Come on out here. And Buck decides to do that. Right. He meets with Bruce beforehand and is like, man, I'm really worried about this. Hey, don't tell Ray and Chloe. I don't, I don't want them to be worried about me. So Buck goes off on one of his first missions since joining the Tribulation Force. And he reiterates, hey, last time I saw this guy, he killed two people. Mm -hmm. He put a bullet in them. I'm legitimately worried. And he has reason to be. But he he goes to the airport. I thought it was funny. They left the ticket for him under Mr. McGillicuddy. Yeah, they. Uh, he's having to use his fake. <laughs> the most yeah. fake name. Yeah, a fake name. Also, there's a small thing that gets mentioned that I want to make sure I, I hit on. Because this small few sentences will lead to about 50 to 70, uh, about 70 to 80 pages of filler plot where Buck is not wanting to let Verna, the boss that he has scuffle with, know that he, he's getting his stuff like uh, into his office. And he actually mailed it to the Chicago uh, office, trying to get it transferred from the office all the way back to his apartment. And Oh, yeah. yeah and so he, he asked Alice to do it for um, uh, him. And he's just like, oh, she's like, oh, no problem. I have to be going that way late morning anyway. I'm picking up my fiance at the airport. So, you know, Vern doesn't have to know anything. I'll just get that stuff in your apartment. I'll do you a favor, bud. You know, now that, that little bit gets spun into a whole web of misunderstanding that they just keep on for so long. Oh yeah, the rom-com misunderstanding between uh, Chloe and Buck. That, I know we're not talking too much about the romance plot, but that's just because it is just scene after scene of Buck and Chloe talking, each one talking about the other one, either to themselves or to Ray, and just going, I don't know what to do about him. Like, just talk. Just, like, have a conversation. Like, people. Like, just talk to each other. Does he like me? Man, this... I'm... 
Gavin, I'm frustrated, bud. I'm frustrated. Oh, like this is this is how because usually how how uh, before I go on the air, what I'll do is I'll just start reading the book and uh, like because I usually like listen to it on audiobook, you know, a week or two before, and then the day of I'll uh, I'll go through it, and that that's just been my morning. It's been watching these two people like just kind of like shuffle towards each other, but like not talk about it. And I'm like, guys, guys, just 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 call each other, jeez. All right, so so we gotta we gotta go ahead and um, put our foot on the gas to get through the rest of this because there's not a ton that happens, but there's a lot that gets said that's very important. So we've learned that Rayford is getting recertified for the Boeing seven fifty seven. He does a flight certification that goes seemingly well, and then he gets a note from Hattie that says, "Hey, uh, just thought you should know the new Air Force One is a seven fifty seven. Winky face, which is going to play into where Rayford's arc is going." But cut back to Buck, and he's getting the full mob treatment when he hits New York. He is met at the airport by a limo containing a goon who will not talk to him. Yeah. Um, He is brought to a a ritzy Manhattan yacht club. On the docks, yeah. Like, I even, like, like highlight, oh, man, he gets, like, dropped off at the docks. And this is in contrast to him at the plane like he was just getting like the five-star treatment on the plane too like he was getting like balls of shit. oh yeah he got uh he got don perignon on the plane but he's not drinking because now buck's a good christian he doesn't drink anymore he doesn't swear uh he feels bad about eavesdropping on verna so overall buck's uh starting to subtly clean up his act a little bit mm-hmm. so he gets to the yacht club and he doesn't meet nikolai who does he meet he meets his good old friend Heim Rosenweig. Yeah, my second favorite character, man. I love Heim. He's, I, I, he's, I do he's too. Awesome. Like whenever he showed up, it's all like a, I don't know. He he has like a, he has a lot of charm to him. I, I love Heim. He's extremely charming. Like he's actually pretty well written. I mean, I I gotta say, like he does slide a little bit into some stereotype stuff, but I think they stay just above it to where it's not like just overly like uh gross come on but he's he's actually a compelling character and i having read the rest of the books i do like this guy so uh he and Haim have a, a very interesting conversation kind of recapping the results of the russian attack on israel i wanted to take a couple minutes because we didn't really talk about it in book one about the gog and magog invasion section mm-hmm. i thought we i thought we hit on that a little bit we said it we said gog and magog and for those of you who are like what are these words it is from the book of ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 and i'm gonna be skipping around here a little bit so that uh, i don't have to read these whole chapters it says in the book of ezekiel Son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. I will turn you around and drag you along. I will bring you from the far north and send you against the mountains of Israel. I will strike your bow from your left hand and make your arrows drop from your right. On the mountains of Israel, you will fall and all of your troops and the nations with you. I will give you as food to all kinds of carrion birds and wild animals. You will fall in the open field, for I have spoken, declares the sovereign Lord. I will send fire on Magog and on those who live in safety in the coastlands, and you will know that I am the Lord. Uh, Anybody who's seen Pulp Fiction and knows that famous Ezekiel 25, 17, and you will know my name is the Lord, gets said a lot throughout the book of Ezekiel. So um, that's where that famous Samuel Jackson line comes from. 
I'm going to skip ahead. On that day, I will give Gog a burial place in Israel in the valley of those who travel east of the sea. It will block the way of travelers because Gog and all his hordes will be buried there. So it will be called the Valley of Haman Gog. For seven months, the Israelites will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. All the people of the land will bury them. And the day I display my glory will be a memorial day for them, declares the sovereign Lord. Ah, okay. Now I'm starting to see where some of the... Yeah. They will spread out across the land along with the others. They will bury any bodies that are lying on the ground. As they go through the land, anyone who sees a human bone will leave a marker beside it, and the grave diggers will bury it in the valley of Haman Gog, near a town called Hamana. And so they will cleanse the land. So this prophecy in Ezekiel that is not really related to Revelation or end times or anything, again, lots of scholars thinking that it's related to other things, is prophesying and according to LaHaye, that attack from these different groups that will come from the north, these kingdoms of the north, um, that will attack the Israelites, um, you know, in modern day Israel. The results of everything that we learned from Chaim is that the nation of Israel is still being funded by like all of the stripping that they did of these Russian planes. They have enough fuel left over to burn for a long time. They are able to get so much material from these planes because it was a huge fleet. They're not going to have to be burning other fuels imported in for years. I don't think that's really how that works, but it's trying to shoehorn it in to fulfill prophecy. So from Hayam, we learn about the coming seven-year treaty with Israel. So you want to talk about that for a second? Yeah, so there's going to be a seven-year treaty with Israel and how uh, they're trying to really incentivize that is if you don't sign this treaty, you won't be able to get access to Heim's uh, magic uh, fertilizer formula that just turns your, like, that will make all of your land uh, fertile and prosperous. They have a, uh, and this is also tied to the disarmament policy, and if you don't hand over your nuclear weapons, the UN will use the ones that they've gotten from the other country to blow your country off the map. Yeah, dude. And Or if you attack Israel, too. If you ever threaten Israel, if you attack them in any way, uh, we're going to nuke you to glass off the face of the planet. Yeah. We are the UN. We are Tim LaHaye's nightmare. <laughs> The exact quote is Haim says, any nation that threatens Israel will suffer immediate extinction using the full complement of weaponry available to the UN. With every, with every country donating 10%, you can imagine the firepower, which also is, uh, I think I may have mentioned this before, but that's also like the amount you're supposed to tithe of your earnings too? Yeah, weird little Bible reference of a of a tenth of the earnings being given. Um, so Nikolai is almost a, a church figure um, that they're tithing 10% of their nuclear arsenal to him. We also learn about a character that's going to show up a little later, Rabbi Zion ben Judah, another character that I actually quite like, and his three-year study about the prophecies of the Messiah so that the Jews can eventually recognize him. I don't want to spoil what his conclusions are, but I think based on what you've heard in the book so far, you can probably guess who he ends up thinking that the Messiah is. Uh -huh. um, but I do want to drop this one in here. Christians are taught and then will tell other people that Jesus fulfills all of the requirements to be the Messiah. Other Bible scholars will dissent on that opinion that he actually does not. 
in a lot of cases. And there's even some very strong scholarly arguments about the validity of things like Jesus was born in Bethlehem, why Jesus of Nazareth was born in Bethlehem, you know, that he was of David. There's a lot of stuff there where Christians kind of misinterpret um, what the Mashiach actually is. And I am not a Torah scholar. I'm, I'm not even a Bible scholar. I am not any kind of scholar unless it's like Metal Gear Solid. Uh, <laughs> But, um, but yeah, but I, I have read a lot of comparative study of them saying, eh, that whole Jesus fulfills all these messianic prophecies is, is probably incorrect. They talk about bringing Ben Judah onto Carpathia's staff as a spiritual advisor. But before we talk about all that, we got to cut back to Chloe real quick. Cause what happens when Chloe goes to Buck's apartment just to check in on him? So she went and uh, she sees Alice coming out of the apartment. She got the misunderstanding that uh, this was his fiance based on something that she said. Like she walks out like, hey, uh, do you work here? And she said, yeah, how may I help you? She's like, well, I, th- I think I may have saw you earlier today. And then Alice replies with, you might have. I was with my fiance. Is there some someone uh, you need to see here? Uh, and then she just like, oh, no, this Bruce, uh, this is uh, Buck's fiance. Oh, no, I've fallen in love with uh, a man that's going to get married. Yeah, there's the rom-com misunderstanding and come on and just how long they uh they dwell on this too is just so agonizing as yeah well. dude it's a like, lot and and there's also a, an interesting thing uh someone sent chloe anonymous flowers and it's not buck that sent them or rayford um uh because rayford says well i i didn't send them to you yeah, but she thinks they're from Buck and she just kind of tosses them in the trash. Yeah, yeah, and so that adds to like the anger. Like, why is this man has a fiance sending me flowers? So now she's just absolutely pissed. Yeah. So cut back, because there's a lot of intercutting in this first section, and that's going to become something that become, I, as far as I remember, a little bit more common throughout the series. Mm-hmm. It does that TV writing kind of cutting back and forth, shifting perspective. So we get more interaction between Hyam and Buck. Hyam mentions, he's like, hey, when you go in to see Nikolai, he's going to ask you to be there at the signing of the treaty. The treaty that he actually doesn't say is seven years, he says five to eight, Mm -hmm. but the reader is meant to infer, oh yeah, it's seven. And then he goes in to meet with Nikolai in a scene that I actually kind of liked. Oh yeah. Um, I called it the Antichrist stare down. I, this is like when you go into Palpatine's office. (laughs) Yeah, dude, he's going into, he's going into Chancellor Palpatine's office and he's, uh, he's trying to feel out what Nikolai knows. Nikolai's trying to figure out what he knows. Oh, there's actually a line, Hall, what a, uh, on that Palpatine analogy, uh, 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 Haim even says um, uh, the word, the line, of course, make m- no mistakes. He is the United Nations now. I am the United Nations. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> nice. He has kind of a very mobster godfather talk with him, a little bit more overbearing than he's ever had with Buck before, because Buck has usually kind of been in awe of this guy. A couple of things that I want to shout out, because basically he says, hey, Buck, I want you to work for me. I want you to be part of my media arm because I'm going to buy up all of the media outlets in the world, which, again, never going to happen. Utterly contrived impossibility, but let's go with it even after this huge tragedy, because we find out that Nikolai was named the sole beneficiary of our not George Soros, 
Jonathan Stonegal's estate. So he has literally all the money in the world. Money is literally no object for him. He can buy whomever or whatever he wants. So that has increased Nikolai's power level quite a bit. But a couple of shout outs. Nikolai makes a couple of references to karma and how his good karma has helped him along. And there's a thing in uh, evangelicalism that Eastern religions, things like beliefs in karma or even practicing yoga, Hinduism, Taoism, Buddhism, those are all evil. They are false religions that actually worship the devil. That is a pretty common teaching. So coding Eastern religion is sinister, par for the course. Mm -hmm. Also, how he uses karma too is kind of funny. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think he really gets the description right, but yeah, it's in there. It's like, well, I did so much good stuff that, you know, the Stone of Gaul and what was kind of in my way and the fact that he died and uh, that actually benefited me, you know, that's just good karma. Yeah, just that everything's coming up, Nikolai. I'm, I'm just doing great out here, living my best life, you know? Also, weird shout out to the American militia movement also hits different in 2020. He talks about, he's like, yeah, well, the American militia movement doesn't love your unification plans, which like the Boogaloo boys would not like the one world government. Like they wouldn't. <laughs> The guys in the Hawaiian shirts would be like, no, but I'm, I'm not sure that would work out for them in, this, in the context of this story. He also mentions, I'm going to make you an offer from your American movies, Cameron, one you can't refuse. By the way, you would do well to be afraid of me. Like, I love Nikolai, dude. <laughs> yeah, he uh, just like he's laying it out there. Like, it really is a Palpatine scene. He's just being like, the mask is starting to slowly get peeled off, which I, I love. And eventually we're going to get to what I call the mask off scene, um, which is is my favorite. And and we're I'm going to be so happy when we finally get there. Another really mobster line is just like, before I get into everything else, Buck, let's, let me just reflect on something. You remember when I assured you I could just make a problem go away for you? Then Buck uh, remembers the whole thing about Scotland Yard where um, uh, one of his friends was killed in a car bombing. Yeah, he does call back to that. Nick again tries to put the glamour on Buck. I call him Nick in my notes because I'm tired of typing out Nikolai. But yeah, Carpathia tries to put the glamour on Buck, but he thinks about Chloe and his friends to resist the Jedi mind trick. So power of friendship. You know, you gotta resist. Because like, uh, he starts getting like images flood into his mind of like bad stuff. So I think that's a manifestation of a uh, Carpathia's power that they're trying to show. And so he blocks it out with like good vibes. Yeah, he Kingdom Hearts is his way out of it by thinking about his friends. Buck mentions because Carpathia is trying to convince him to come work for him. And he says, um, well, what are you motivated by, Cameron? And Buck says, I'm motivated by truth and justice. And Nikolai cuts him off. He goes, and the American way. Just like Superman. Yeah. <laughs> Just like, like, like Clark Kent. I'm a reporter for a great Metropolitan Weekly. Yeah, he compares himself to Clark Kent, which is like, oh, come on, dude. Also, Buck used prayer as well. He uses his prayer skill and uh, manages to fight off some of the Antichrist uh, mind magic. Yeah. We do cut back to Ray, and he's getting another reprimand for proselytizing on the job, which he didn't do which is really weird yeah he uh the most he did was uh kind of like some small i don't think we actually touched on like the the 747 scene where he's being tested but there's pretty much just light banter like uh 
I think they meet, I think they like reference like, oh, is this like the Porsche of Planes? And he says something to just make the ex- examiner like smile. He calls it the Porsche of Planes and it doesn't get a reaction from the examiner. And then he goes, well, I guess more like a Jaguar, which the examiner does crack a smile at, which is fine. Yeah. Um, but he doesn't take out his Bible. His Bible's in his bag. He makes a point to follow the rules after his last reprimand and not proselytize, but he gets written up for it anyway. We're later going to find out that it was Hattie that filed the complaint against Ray, and she claims it was for a prank, but then we see Hattie come into the office while Nikolai is talking to Buck and refer to Ray as the target. She's kind of like taking on a very much like a trickster vibe, Hattie. Like that's the archetype that she's playing into. Like she's one of the tendrils of the Antichrist that is like messing with their personal lives and stuff. Yeah, she's a shooter for Nikolai now, which like, you know, I, I hate that this is way the way it's going for her character. I said in the first book I've read and I know where her story's going and I, I don't like it. Ultimately, Buck is offered to take over the Chicago Tribune, the esteemed publication, the Chicago Tribune, which is going to be bought up by Nikolai, and it's going to be renamed the Tribune under the under Global Community Enterprises. Remember the phrase global community. That's going to come up later. And I wanted to slide this in here. This is the paranoia about fake news before fake news. Right. This is back in the 90s. This paranoia was always there that eventually the bad people were going to take over all of media and they were going to control our minds with it. And it was going to be covered by a one world government that basically turned everything into North Korean television. That was the paranoia. These seeds of that paranoia were planted long before, you know, your uncle started sharing bogus articles on Facebook, you know? Mm-hmm. We're going to start to wrap up here um, and get to a stopping point. We cut back to another meeting of the Tribulation Force. They're back at church. More creepy Chloe stuff. Mm-hmm. More creepy Chloe stuff. Uh, Buck thinks on Chloe and thinks, yeah, she's, uh, she's really mature for her age. Man, the only time I touched her is when I wiped chocolate from a chocolate chip cookie off of her lips. Oh, God. Oh. Yeah, that, that was <laughs> the first swipe moment. Uh, or what? Yeah, love it first way. <laughs> oh man! So we learn that Chloe gets offered a full time job at New Hope. I keep referring to New Hope as Star Wars Church <laughs> in my notes. So I wrote Star Wars Church. Chloe is very angry because she's assumed that Buck is living with Alice, that they are engaged, that Alice's fiance, and she tells uh, Bruce, "Buck shouldn't be living with that girl. It's wrong." And they end up meeting. Ray discusses with Bruce beforehand that he may be offered the new job as the pilot for the president of the United States, President Fitzhugh. Mm-hmm. And they talk about whether or not Ray's going to take it because it may relocate him to Washington. It probably will. Buck and Chloe have an awkward moment where they're looking over the church directory. Yeah, where like he's looking over the directory and he's trying to show it to Chloe. Chloe's like, no, I won't look at it. And he's like, no, wait, come here. And uh, getting her to, and she actually gets it to look at it. There, there's a lot that they're not talking to each other about their, uh, about anything. So it's just like this awkward, tense, uh, silent moment between them. Yeah. And for those of you who don't know what a church directory is, most larger churches or, or even smaller ones will have these publications that come out of these pictures, kind of like a high school yearbook. Mm-hmm. 
of members of the church and their families. I think it's a community building thing. It's meant to show like, oh, we did these these pictures and you actually go in for shoots in a lot of cases, or at least we did when I was growing up. Oh, really? That wasn't... I, I... Oh, I remember a little, yeah, yeah, now I'm starting, yeah, the memories about that coming back, yeah. I mean, yeah, Olin Mills would come in and do do the shoots, and uh, and we'd get in our, our Sunday best and show up for it, Um, and then you'd buy the church directory, and then you'd have people's contact information, you'd know what they looked like, and honestly, I mean, we're trying to build a community, it's not a bad idea. Then they, they begin to meet, and Chloe is really salty. at buck she's like uh hey by the way bruce uh why don't we go over like some of the ground rules for like i don't know being a christian because i don't think everybody here quite knows uh what they should and shouldn't be doing i'm not gonna say anybody specific real salty and i i think it makes chloe look really bad i don't like that she's written this way because again it's just sort of like i don't know what this crazy girl's problem is right yeah, it's more of that casual misogyny like we talked about in the first book. I don't like it. And I don't think, like, I mean, I guess, like, misunderstandings happen, but I don't think, like, like Chloe would be that, like, I guess, oblivious in this scenario. Like, if she was written more accurately. You can't spend so much of the first book telling us how smart and level-headed Chloe is and then have her do this. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. So that takes us to the culmination of this part and where we are officially going to end because finally something cool happens. Cut back to our two witnesses standing at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem on the news. And what happens, Gavin? It gets cool again. Well, some people uh, try to kill them and they just breathe fire like dragons on them. <laughs> and that, that comes uh, that comes like after the Bible verse, the angel tells the apostle John, and I'll give my power to my two witnesses. And they'll prophesy 1,260 days, clothe in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. They got their prophecy of fire breathing powers. Dude, so I told you at the beginning that these were also comic books. Yeah. I have such a memory of this comic book panel that is the witnesses literally fire is coming out of their eyes and out of their mouths. And it's that crazy, like early two thousands, ultimate Spider-Man like mm-hmm. fire that is just rolling out like a wave and engulfing these guys with Uzis. Like the guys with Uzis are running at them and just like this crazy, like gulf of fire. It's, it is so metal. Like <laughs> I just, love uh, I, it, just I just looked it up on Google and I, find that what i found is like a really bad like cgi rendering of two guys doing that uh yeah they do it in one of the movies i think yeah i I think that is it (laughs) yeah it's nuts so yeah we're gonna end off there um i do want to again one more time point out they said if any man tries to harm them they must be killed in this manner then why in the first book did people just have heart attacks and die when they attacked them they must be killed in the fire way they didn't die by the fire way in the first book Tim, you're you're inconsistent, buddy. You're not even following your own thing, but whatever. Okay, so we actually managed to cover a lot of ground in a section of Tribulation Force where I think we can agree not a lot happens. Right, yeah, this was... Uh... 
this was a slog to get through. And I think it's it starts picking up a little bit in the second section. Definitely in the third section, we start getting some uh, better stuff. Yeah, by the time we get to act three of this book, I think things do pick up a lot more. So stay with us. But thanks again for listening, guys. I have been Shane Bazell. And I've been Gavin Russell. And until next time, don't get burned up by a fire-breathing man. Bye! Okay, that's our show. Please remember to subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And uh, join the community on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all at Rapture Podcasts. Uh, you can email us at rapturepod at gmail.com, and we really want to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Yeah.